It's Monday, January 25th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, and I know what you might be thinking. Maybe you've been looking at the news, seeing the weather in the Washington, D.C. area, and maybe you're thinking, oh, they're not going to have an episode today. Not with the office closed, and it is. Fool Global Headquarters is officially closed today, but I'm happy to say that joining me in studio from Motley Fool Rule Breakers, Supernova, and Million Dollar Portfolio, Simon Erickson. Thanks for being here. I'm glad to be here, Chris. I would like to add, I was personally humored by the soundtrack you guys had on your Motley Fool Money Show on Friday. I heard Snow by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I heard Ice Ice Baby from Vanilla Ice. You guys were, were spot on for the soundtrack. Props to our man behind the glass, Steve Broido, for the winter-themed music. Usually, it's money-themed on the Motley Fool Money Show, but Steve went with the winter theme. We're going to talk about Snowzilla. We will get to that. But we've got earnings season heating up, and we've got a couple of companies merging, because, of course, it is Merger Monday. Let's start with McDonald's. Shares hitting an all-time high after fourth-quarter profits and revenue came in higher than expected. I can't believe I'm I'm seeing this, Simon. Same store sales in the U.S. up 5.7 percent. Wow, that is that is big. That's not just big for McDonald's. That's a legit comp number. Steve Easterbrook is getting it done. No doubt, and five percent globally too is pretty impressive too for an established chain like McDonald's is. And Chris, they're saying all day breakfast was the uh, the reason for the comps being yes. so high. Yeah, I was going back and forth uh, over email with Jason Moser this morning, and I I did I did point out to him uh, as Tony Kornheiser would say, I believe I had that. I believe when the all day breakfast came out, Jason a little skeptical, and I said, no, this is this is going to work. Now I didn't think it was going to work to this degree, but it's it's they definitely got over whatever initial hiccup they had in some of the locations. And pretty impressive. Like you said, Steve Easterbrook getting it done. This is now two consecutive positive quarters of, of positive comps for, for McDonald's after having declining comps for seven quarters before that. So, he's definitely turned this ship around, so to speak. Um, the, the, the question for me, and this is what Steve Easterbrook has said since he, he came in as CEO last year, is that he wants to run the right restaurants. That's the paramount thing for him, is closing down McDonald's that are underperforming and keeping the ones that are performing more productive. He wants to open 1,000 restaurants in 2016, and then he also wants to close 500 this year, too. So, if this all-day breakfast, at first it seemed like it was just a supply nightmare for me and that McDonald's was going to struggle with this, but if you've got performing restaurants and you've got your supply chain in, in uh, intact and, and doing well, this is, this is a great thing for a business like this. Shares up more than 20% since Easterbrook took over as CEO March 1st of last year. And as you said, this is this is a huge company, this is a mature company, and I don't think anyone is expecting that kind of stock performance year over year. That being said, if Easterbrook can perform and get all of his Lieutenants performing in the same way. There's no reason this can't be a stock that, when you think about the dividend that this stock pays, this can be a steady operator, not just as a business, but as a stock as well. And I think the could is the key word in that. Uh, I share the same skepticism of this as an analyst because when you see stuff like all day breakfast is what's propelling comps, let's also look at the bigger picture here. 
you've got 14,000 McDonald's in the United States, and there's no surprise that Chipotle is having some real issues in the United States right now. Um, so the question is, is this, is this 5.7 comps sustainable, or is this just a temporary blip that we're seeing? Or another way of looking at that is, is McDonald's gaining additional business from other companies permanently, or are they just cannibalizing their, their lunch crowd that would normally buy, be buying a Big Mac, is now going to be buying an Egg McMuffin? And I think that's the question is, do we continue to see this over time? Is it sustainable for the longer term, or is this just something that fades away in a couple of quarters? Well, I think you're right. I think the comp, and look, comps are always a number that you want to look at when you're looking at a restaurant stock, but I think they become even slightly more important, particularly with the trend that Easterbrook and his team have been able to reverse. But I think, as you indicated, another thing to keep an eye on is how are they doing with these restaurants? Even for a company this big and this mature, when you're talking about essentially flipping 1,500 restaurants, that's that's no easy task. Definitely not. And and it's a huge, it's a great capital allocating company. I mean, they've been doing this for decades. They've got the locations. They know how to spend money out there on the right things. I still though have to look at the bigger picture and say. Personally, I haven't been to McDonald's in years. I know James Early, our, our colleague here, would back me up on that. I just wonder if that trend reverses because we're starting to go to McDonald's more often, or is this just where somebody who's hungry and wants breakfast at 2 a.m. starts going? We've got a merger in the security systems industry. Tyco and Johnson Controls merging to form a $36 billion company, which will be based in Ireland. And in Tyco, you've got the the biggest pure play fire protection and security company in the world, and now with the tax benefits of being in Ireland, and we've talked about this before, Simon. Probably not the last time we're going to see something like this, but pretty pretty strong move here. You know, and, and it's so funny reading this because you keep seeing these words in the press releases about the synergies and oh, we're a stronger company, it's a larger conglomerate. Let's not overthink this. This <laughs> is a tax inversion deal. Uh, they're expecting to save about 150 million dollars a year on taxes, being domiciled in Ireland instead of the U.S. Uh, big win for for Johnson Controls, obviously. But bigger picture, this is a 32 billion dollar company. This is a huge company. So I think that the loser out of this is America's tax system, right? Yeah, and uh, I, I couldn't help but I don't want to say I, I I felt melancholy, but I did sort of think once I saw that okay, Tyco merging with Johnson Controls, and the merged company is going to be named Johnson Controls PLC. One of the thoughts that went through my head was ah, and the last vestige of Dennis Kozlowski oh yes is gone. Can we just take a moment and walk down memory lane? With how unintentionally hilarious a CEO Dennis Kozlowski was when he was running Tyco. Well, I think we looked at this this morning, right? And we we saw that he had the what was it six thousand dollar shower go- curtain, golden burgundy shower curtain, yep. right? And you found something about the dog umbrella, a, a dog umbrella stand for fifteen thousand dollars. So when when we talk about executive compensation and CEOs maybe being paid too much, just know. That Dennis Kozlowski is on the Mount Rushmore of CEO excess. Oh, he was the poster child of this, right? The, the big get bigger, get conglomerate, get get the CEO more money and more stock options and stuff. And I don't know anyone who needs a five thousand dollars shower curtain. <laughs> Um, but again, this this is a massive company. I think that the uh, the interesting part of this will be the Internet of Things, as you mentioned. 
Tyco is, is a global leader in, in fire protection and security. Johnson Controls does a whole bunch of stuff, mostly electronics uh, with a focus on batteries and building products. And 70% of the combined sales for, the, for this mega company that they're, that they're forming here uh, will be on products. And Internet of Things is obviously going to have a lot of electronically connected products. Uh, and then the services is going to be the other 30% of the business. But I think that if there's anything that, that they might get as a growth driver out of this, that's going to be the one. Shares of Twitter falling again this morning on the news that four executives are leaving. And <laughs> it's, it's, uh, look, we've talked before about looking more closely at a stock when a CEO leaves and when the chief financial officer leaves. And those are still one and one A on my personal list of. You're going to get my attention if I see that. Right. That being said, in the case of Twitter, we're talking about four people who head up the following departments engineering, products, media, and a vice president of human resources. Yikes. I know that Jack Dorsey, the CEO, took issue with how this was initially reported because some news outlets were reporting that they were fired and he went out of his way to say no that is not the case they are leaving of their own accord whether they were fired whether you know whether they jumped on their own or whether they were pushed four executives walking out the door and i i think the the market is interpreting this correctly in taking this not as a positive not as well now jack dorsey gets to put his own team in place the stock market writ large is looking at this and saying this does not go in the plus column you know, and Jack Dorsey's official tweet about the announcement was more than 140 characters. Oh, come on. That's it it just, took that's more just... than that to, to explain what was going on with this. Four executives out the door, Chris. Gosh, red flag, right? We, we do like Twitter. We think that there is some huge uh, potential for this giant platform that is Twitter out there, uh, which I would consider more of a social media company rather than a social network. As far as you know, spreading the news and seeing what's going on in the world immediately, as opposed to the traditional way that we've done journalism. But you've got to take pause when you see something that is as big as four executives leaving at the same time. Obviously, the strategy is now up in the air as far as what Twitter looks like in the future. Jack Dorsey, let's not forget also the founder of Twitter, who's standing as CEO right now, has got a lot of other stuff going on too. He just uh, IPO'd um, Square. In November, also, which he is also the chairman and CEO of that company as well. And right after he did that, um, it's also interesting to see Ahmed Kordistani, who is the uh, chairman of Twitter, who is previously the, the chief strategy officer and business development officer of Google. So, you've within the last six months now seen this shift in strategy, we think, for Twitter. This is still an advertising company, advertising is still 90% of Twitter's revenue. Mostly from t- promoted tweets is where that's coming from, but I'm seeing a lot of similarities to uh, to the big G that is Google uh, in the new Twitter that we're starting to see in the last six months. I want to come back to Google in a minute, but I, you hit on something that I think puts Jack Dorsey number one on the list of CEOs on the hot seat, and I would put him even uh, ahead of Marissa Meyer at Google, at Yahoo. Because he's the CEO of two companies, and the shareholders of those two companies over the last 
well, certainly in Square's case, it's just the last few months. In Twitter's case, I would say the last 12 months. They are not happy, nor should they be. And I think that whereas any time a company gets a new CEO, there is some sort of consensus reached on how long collectively that CEO is going to have to put his or her own vision of the business into action. I think Jack Dorsey does not have that benefit, and I would argue that he should not have that benefit. Not when he's CEO of two companies, and I think he's got six months on both of them. Because if six months from now, both these stocks are trading where they are today, and there is no measurable impact on the business, or even just sort of the vision for the business, either Square or Twitter, I think the drumbeat to get him out of the corner office is going to be deafening. There's no doubt about that. And it's going to be, again, the question of what is Twitter? Right now, we know it's about 320 million users that actively use this site, at least monthly. You've got a lot of timeline views and ad impressions and a bunch of other metrics that people are looking at. But let's focus on what Twitter is, and that's the question that Dorsey or whoever is at the helm is going to have to answer for this company. You mentioned Google. Is that the likely candidate to buy Twitter? Because it's for as far as this stock has fallen, it is still an $11 billion company. I know that Larry Page and Sergey Brin can go through the sofas at Google and Alphabet <laughs> and, and come up with, with that kind of change. But I, I do think that for as much as the business has struggled, as you said, it's still a big platform. Engagement for the people who are on the platform is is still relatively high. There there is something there, but it's it's almost I don't know for whatever reason they haven't been able to crack it yet beyond just the advertising. Well, and Chris, you said uh, Jack Dorsey gets six months in the hot seat right now as CEO. I, I'm going to put a reckless prediction out there that Google, whether or not this closes or not, makes a bid to acquire Twitter by the end of the year because there's just too many similarities for me. I mean, first of all, you said $11 billion market cap. Google's sitting on about $71 billion of cash right now. So, that's an investment, but that's not unheard of as far as from financial terms. Uh, let's not forget, Google is now also, also part of Alphabet, which is a decentralized kind of financial allocator. You've got Ruth Porat to be glad to do a deal like this and, and see Twitter stand on its own legs as far as an advertising platform. We already talked about the management. You know, The chairman of Twitter came from Google, let's not forget. And even just the platform of Twitter itself, I mean, you've seen ad engagements up 165% year over year. That's actually the number of views of the advertising on the platform. But the cost per ad is down 39% year over year. This is exactly, exactly what Google's doing with YouTube TrueView right now. It's the same strategy of get more clicks and get the cost per ad lower as long as you're attracting the eyeballs. Um, And then the last similarity is Twitter, 86% of revenues from mobile. I mean, to me, this is the stars aligning that Twitter folds into the, the Google ecosystem uh, in some way or another. And I don't know if it's called Twitter or it's called Google at some point, but I can see that happening. That's going to be my reckless prediction that, that Google is going to go after this company. I'm glad you mentioned Ruth Porat because she's been chief financial officer at Alphabet for less than a year. And it's already had a tremendously positive impact on that business. And I. I wonder if she has a number in mind because everything I've read about her, uh, and it, just look at how she has 
helped in the restructuring of Alphabet and the way that she has basically run the numbers and, by all accounts, has tightened the purse strings on on some of the spending in some of the areas of that huge business that Alphabet is. But I wonder if she's got a number in mind. Just like we have stocks on a watch list, I wonder if she's looking at Twitter and she's run the numbers and said, okay, it makes sense for us at this amount. And maybe it's $11 billion. Maybe it's lower. Maybe the numbers work out that it could be even higher. But as you said, this is money that they can spend. And when you consider that Facebook bought WhatsApp for $19 billion, granted, it's a much larger user base, but still, I don't know. I I I think uh, I think it'll be really interesting to see if this plays out. I think if they do acquire it, they just keep it as Twitter. If you just look at what they've done with the other brands in their portfolio, I guarantee you, Ruth Porat has got a number in mind. This this is a line item on a spreadsheet right now somewhere within Google management. Uh, we. We talked about this a lot in our uh, Rule Breakers and Stock Advisor coverage of Google uh, back in October, Chris, which I'd urge any listeners to check out if they get a chance, just of how the capital allocation works at Alphabet now. And it's, it's basically, Ruth Porat has done a great job of being shareholder-friendly, saying, hey, we are this giant company, we've got a ton of cash, we've got a ton of projects, how do we pick who gets us to loosen the purse springs, uh, strings and, and actually put some money into, into doing this. And Google's always been done at that. I mean, the moonshot initiatives and everything else. But um, it, it's on that sheet somewhere, and it's going to be a matter of, is Twitter a high enough priority for Alphabet to actually go out and, and put the money behind it? Marketfoolery at fool.com is our email address from Patrick Urkel in Phoenix, Arizona, self-identified as listener numero ocho. Uh, a wow! Note, a note regarding uh, the closing music on Market Foolery last week. Patrick writes, "You hit the mark on Thursday's Market Foolery with Gimme Shelter' by the Rolling Stones." Uh, all props to our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, for that. You may have already binged on Netflix last weekend from the Blizzard, but add the documentary Twenty Feet from Stardom" to your queue. It features the backup vocalists of the most prolific songs of the last half century. Notably, it features Mary Clayton and how she was called in to sing. On Gimme Shelter, that that is on my queue. I haven't watched it yet, but that's uh, a, I think it was the Academy Award-winning documentary from 2014. So, uh, 20, 20 feet from stardom. And I think, if I remember, she was pulled out at like two in the morning to sing that track you're on say, the background of Gimme you're, Shelter. You're suggesting to me that the Rolling Stones may have kept odd hours. Indeed, back in the day, that might have been an early morning for them. How did you deal with the blizzard? Was there a lot of Netflix binging in your home? Uh, we watched Entourage for about 14 hours straight on Saturday. <laughs> I, I, this is one of my favorite shows of all time, and we basically just relived the first eight seasons all day on, on the weekend. Nice. How did you deal with the snow? You're in a you're in an apartment building. You didn't have to shovel. Very close by. Yes, uh, moved from a house in Texas with all of the associated work for that uh, to an apartment where I don't have to do anything now. It's it was kind of awesome. But you did spend part of your childhood in Iowa. That's right. So yeah. you know from snow. That's right. I, I was born in Iowa, lived my early years there. The snow was above my head, Chris. Uh, again, no snow shoveling for a, for a young six-year-old Simon Erickson at the time. Yeah, the snow... I, I will, here's all I'm going to say about this storm. Uh, I've lived here for 25 years. We've had other storms that have dumped a lot of snow on us. This was the first time in 25 years 
that I had to wear ski goggles outside because I was doing some shoveling on Saturday later in the day, and the wind. We did hit blizzard conditions. I mean, the the wind was really incredible. And, and and the dig out continues. I'm impressed you made it in today, Chris. I mean, this is dedication showing up. This is a state of emergency, I think, or something in D.C. right now. It is. The federal government is still shut down. Fortunately, you and Dan Boyd and I are walking distance from the offense. That that said, it's not like the sidewalks are clear. <laughs> I was uh, trading messages uh, with with one of our colleagues who's working from home and. Uh, she uh, she lives in the district and she was and the subway system is not running above ground so there's no way to even get out here by subway and she was saying oh i'm glad you were able to get in i'm glad the sidewalks were clear and i just said oh no i didn't say that i didn't say the sidewalks <laughs> were clear i was walking in the road but but uh but yeah we we were able to make it in so uh Hopefully, our office will be open tomorrow. But given given the relatively slow pace of the dig out here in Alexandria, I'm not convinced the office is going to be open tomorrow. And you know, didn't we hear stories from our grandparents about walking uphill a mile in the snow <laughs> to get to work? I, I kind of feel like that's what's going on in Alexandria, Virginia, right now. Uh, a little bit. Although I, I will say that I do like that human interaction and common courtesy seems to go up. The day after a storm like this, just yesterday when I was around town and just walking around or doing some shoveling, neighbors helping one another, that sort of thing. It it is nice to see that sort of thing. Now, that's the day after the storm. If if people aren't dug out in a few more days, then it it, it could get uh, apocalyptic out here. True enough. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me, Chris. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. 